Welcome to the Perimenopausal Mamas podcast for hormonal mamas who want to reclaim their own natural state of health to thrive and raise healthy kids. I'm Dr. Lisa Weeks, naturopathic doctor in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a perimenopausal mama to my little boy named Stuart. And I'm Dr. Tony Reed, naturopathic doctor, birth doula, and hypnobirthing educator in Calgary, Canada, and I'm a perimenopausal mama to my little girl, Frankie. Thanks for supporting us for the past 100 episodes. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us by visiting our Patreon page, where you can find out how you can join us for our monthly patron webinar, where we do a deeper dive discussion about all things perimenopause. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not meant to substitute professional medical advice. Always consult with your licensed healthcare provider. Welcome back, everyone, to the Perimenopausal Mamas podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be chatting with Teresa Isabel Diaz. So she is a pharmacist, a certified menopause practitioner. She has um, a great website called Menopause Ed. We're going to talk to her today about genitourinary syndrome of menopause, otherwise known as GSM. It's something that so many women suffer from, and they think they just have to live with it. So we're going to get into what it is and what you can do about it. But before we dive in, I'm going to introduce Teresa Isabel Diaz. So she is a registered pharmacist with over 25 years of professional experience in community pharmacy and drug information here in Toronto, where I am as well. In 2013, she became a certified menopause practitioner and CMP through the North American Menopause Society, NAMS, and founded Menopause Ed to help women navigate the change. Teresa raises awareness about menopause, provides education, and supports women in midlife, 40 years and above. She helps women understand what's going on in their bodies and minds during the menopause transition to decrease fear and anxiety about this natural but sometimes challenging phase of life. She educates women about healthy lifestyles and symptom management options so women can make informed decisions about their care to improve quality of life, relationships, and work. Teresa has delivered education and training to the Royal Bank of Canada, Maple Leaf Foods, the University of of Waterloo, the University of Toronto, Brock University, Stantec, women in government, and other major employers and associations. She's also written and presented to several pharmacy associations and the Pharmacy Practice Plus Business Magazine. Wow, you're a busy lady there, Teresa. Welcome. Thanks for taking some time to join us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Oh, great. I think you're calling in from Portugal, right? I think we can all... uh... I am sure what it is like there right now. We have a cold, snowy day here in Toronto. We had a a nice, uh, hot, sunny day. It was at least up to 20 degrees Celsius today. Oh my gosh, we can only dream. (laughs) We're in the minuses (laughs) again here. It's coming to Toronto. Yeah, I know. I'll make the good weather when I come back. Oh, please do. Please do. Thank you. Um, And Teresa, I wanted to know what inspired you to be a pharmacist and help women through perimenopause and menopause? So the pharmacist part was first. I always liked physiology and biology, and I was always 
pretty much of a nerd to find out how does the body work? How do all these systems work together to make such a perfect thing as a human body? So I didn't like blood. And having studied in Portugal before I immigrated to Canada after my degree in pharmacy, I knew that if I went to medicine, I would have to do an internship in emergency services. And I didn't want to see people with cuts and um, car accidents and all that. I, I wasn't very good at that. So I figured the next best thing to learn all about the human body is to become a pharmacist. And that's how I chose to be a pharmacist. And then um, I graduated in 1988. I went to Canada in 1989 to learn English. I have been living there ever since. This is my first winter away in 34 years. And then uh, when I was in my late 40s, my older son, who's almost 31 now, asked me if I was bipolar. And I was Taken aback, I had no idea why he was asking that. And then he offered his explanation. He was actually speaking on behalf of his brother and his father. So they thought my mood swings were extreme. I was either high or low. And they were having a hard time dealing with that because I never knew if I was going to chop their heads off or be very happy and uh, singing and dancing in the kitchen and all that. So. I didn't think I had a I had a bipolar. It was not in a family anyway. So I decided to investigate why am I going in such extremes. In those days, this was uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. There was not a whole lot of good information on the internet. And it was the time of Susan Somers uh, having a lot of uh, exposure about uh, a lot of uh, bioidenticals, which at the time were more mostly about yams and stuff like that. So I knew enough with my scientific bike background um, to go for reliable, accurate uh, websites, uh, references, resources. And it took me a while to find good resources. And I finally landed on the North American Menopause Society, which you uh, referred to on my on introduction, NAMS. It's a great uh, resource for both uh, medical professionals and women. And I, I read and I learned and I figured out I was in perimenopause. And one of the not so well-known symptoms, if we can call it symptoms because menopause is not a disease. So I don't like to call it symptoms, but being a healthcare professional, I don't have a good word for to replace <laughs> symptoms. Anyway, one of the challenge, one of the, the experiences in menopause was mood swings. Obviously, mine were being extreme and were affecting the family. So I learned I was in perimenopause. And then I also figured out that NAMS offered a certification, a certification as a menopause practitioner to uh, many uh, medical uh, uh, professionals like doctors, nurses, pharmacists, all uh, many, many, many people could take this certification. So I decided that as a pharmacist, I had a lot of women in my age bracket that could use my help through this uh, phase of life. So I decided to write the exam. 
And I also knew that in perimenopause, my, and I was feeling it badly, my concentration, it was, was gone. I would read a whole page of a book and not remember a single line and reread it and read it three times before I could get anything in my head. So I scheduled the exam for a year down the road and I had to study this huge book and I had to know the book from cover to cover. And my memory was also bad, which is also a, a challenge in menopause. Memory and concentration usually are gone uh, out with the estrogen. So I studied and studied and studied. And I went down to Texas for the NAMS conference that year. And I wrote the exam. And a year, a month later, I got the results and I had passed. Yay. So I could add, <laughs> I know it was such a relief. Now I could add NCMP to my uh, farm, uh, bachelor's of farm. I could have those initials, those credentials showing on my name. And that gave me the confidence I know enough to, to uh, help women in menopause. So I tried. I tried my hardest. But pharmacy, community pharmacy, the way it was being practiced then, and it has changed a lot, thank goodness, um, we didn't have much privacy. So women would come to me at the counter and there would be with people waiting behind and listening in. And, of course, they didn't feel um, very keen on sharing such intimate and personal experiences. And I didn't have the luxury to take them to a counseling room because then I would have 12 people waiting for me when I came back mm -hmm. to fill prescriptions and take care of. So I was trying to do my best, trying to be quiet, which is hard for me, but trying to explain things without making it a public affair. And it wasn't working very well. So because of that, I founded Menopause Ed which since 2014 has been an online service because I didn't want to be uh, geographically limited. I Not only women in Toronto experience menopause challenges, women all over Canada and all over the world for that matter, go through a, a hard time sometimes. And so I decided to bring everything online. And it was it's much better now because now everybody knows how to use Zoom and other um other apps like that, that I use uh, telemedicine because it's confidential and it's secure and all that. But now everybody knows how to do that. In those days, I would have to explain women how to get online and chat with me online. And many times we went to coffee shops and many times if they lived close to me, they would invite me in their living rooms and we would chat. Oh, nice. So that's the story. <laughs> I love it. And I love that you use the term experiences. And so many women do experience those mood changes, right? That they mm -hmm. pick up on, their loved one picks up on. They don't feel like themselves. You know, the concentration is a big concern. Heart palpitations, a lot of people don't realize are a symptom or a challenge or experience. I'm going to start using those words instead exactly, of perimenopause exactly. and menopause. But I love the support you're offering women. And, and I'm hearing more and more about NAMS and that certification. And it sounds like such a wonderful program. And I'm excited to pick your brain today. Um, so if I did the math right, I'm, I'm guessing you're about in your 50s. Your kids are about in their 30s. Is that correct? I'll be 60 You'll in be 60. nine months. Wow. And, um, awesome. my, my son, my oldest son, Miguel, was, is going to be 31 next month. And my youngest, Philippe, is going to be 28 in June. 
Amazing. So you've gone through, you know, these transitions yourself, I'm assuming, and I'm wondering what's helped you the most. So you've had this education, you have these tools at your fingertips. What's helped you the most with the experiences and challenges of perimenopause and menopause? Overall, it's, and that's why I called my company Menopause Ed. It's the education. It's being aware of what you may experience because not every woman is going to have every whatever they say on internet 30 something symptoms of menopause whatever we're not going to have that but no knowing that you may experience all these changes and that they are part of the transition and that there's usually nothing to be afraid of not much to worry about and it was a fluid thing. I started having hot flashes on my head. Then they came to my back. It felt like someone had just stuck a, a heating pad between my back and my chair. Then I had them on my chest. It felt like someone just opened an oven door right in front of oh, my no. chest. So all these changes, if you know why they happen, at least I do, I, I can cope with them better. If something is hurting and I don't know why it hurts, I freak out, but I have two kids with no epidural because I knew it was going to hurt and they have to come out. So eventually <laughs> it will be all over. So I, I believe that awareness and education were the two main things that helped me go through menopause. And I had lots and lots of hot flashes. I may have had 30 hot flashes a day for six, six years or longer. And they were bothersome. But as I always said, as long as I can sleep properly, I can handle what happens during the day. Because I wasn't a very good candidate for hormone therapy because I had a, 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 a breast cyst removed at 18. So I was always told to be careful with hormones. So I was trying to do it without hormones. And I, I never completely gave up the idea of taking hormones. Because you never know. I never say never. Mm -hmm. As I said, the challenges, the experiences change with time. And I always said, as long as I can sleep and I can function, I'll stay like this. I took a few things, uh, herbals and over-the-counter things that helped me. And I always said, if I stop sleeping and I can't function, then I will rethink my uh, the management of my menopause. Nice. Oh, yeah. Education and awareness, I believe, are the most important things. I think that's so key. So many women don't even know about perimenopause and all these, these experiences and challenges that can pop up, even including joint pain, and they don't understand what's going on in their body. They don't even know that hot flashes could last more than a year, right? So I think Correct. the uh, anticipation of what's potentially could happen is good to know. And then having a community and a support like you to coach them through and having options. And there's always a risk benefit ratio for any treatment, right? So exactly, natural. Exactly hormonally medication wise, and that's yeah. something you can support women with. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm excited to learn more about menopause ed too. And I know a big area of concern in menopause and perimenopause is vaginal health, urinary health, women start to notice urinary tract infections, changes in, you know, vaginal secretions, irritation, dryness, pain with intercourse. And there's a syndrome called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, otherwise known as GSM for short form, that not a lot of people know about either. Can you explain to us what that is and what it looks like? 
Yes. So if menopause is taboo, GSM is even more taboo if it's possible. And we know that with uh, lack of estrogen, um, all these tissues, because estrogen is the predominant female hormone. So if a vagina, a vagina, a vulva, the labia and all that are female characteristics, they are they are going to have, and they do have, lots of estrogen receptors, places in, in each cell that where estrogen has an effect. So as estrogen leaves our bodies in midlife, those cells are going to miss that effect of estrogen. And things like I just mentioned are very common. The, uh, the layers of the vagina, which is the also called this birth canal, it connects the uh, uterus to the outside. The, this vagina is covered in a multi-layer of cells when we are in, in pre-menopause and we have lots of estrogen. And when we are sexually aroused, those layers produce lubrication, making sexual um, uh, intercourse uh, more pleasant. Uh, there's more uh, lubrication. It, and also the vagina itself shrinks with time because of lack of estrogen. So I like to, to tell women to imagine in pre-menopause, your vagina is like a pleated skirt. When you mm. sit, it has lots of give. And in post-menopause, it's like a, a pencil-shaped skirt. It does not have so much give. It's short and it's gets your legs get stuck inside of it. That's a good and analogy. It, 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 that helps. <laughs> Women understand how the men of the vagina changes with lack of estrogen. That's one way to see it. It does not have as much give. It does not have as, ma as many folds. It's, it's tighter. It's shorter. So there's going to be more friction. There's going to be probably irritation, pain. And then the uh, labia outside, uh, what we call the vulva, can also shrink because estrogen is gone and those... Um, those uh, cells are not being um, are not being exposed to estrogen, and everything kind of dries up. And so, the this is all natural. Doesn't mean it's nice, but it's all natural. It's a process because most uh, other species of animals, except for a couple of whale species, I believe, and humans, animals can reproduce until they die, but women outlive the reproductive life. So at some point in our 50s, usually, because the average age of menopause is 51, we are no longer able to have babies. So we have other roles in our life after that, but not as mothers, maybe grandmothers, maybe as volunteers, maybe as CEOs, whatever it is. But so this whole thing is part of becoming um, non-fertile. But it doesn't mean that we have to put up with it because women 100 years ago, 150 years ago, died at the age of menopause. Now we're living two thirds, one third or even half, one third of half of our lives in menopause, in postmenopause. If we have average age at 51 and some of us are going to live till 80 or 90 and some even 100, that's half of our lives in postmenopause. And this GSM contrary to the hot flashes tend to get better with time. And yes, the average uh, 
length of having half flashes is six to 10 years. So it's now one year, like you said, most women don't even know that. But half flashes tend to get better with time since menopause. GSM tends to get worse. So there are, I believe that we should not suffer needlessly. And there are so many inexpensive and easy to use treatments for the dryness to improve sexual activity, to decrease the pain, to increase lubrication, to increase moisture, that women are not taking benefit of these because of lack of awareness and lack of education. So GSM is one of my uh, one of my major topics to talk about menopause because it's it's so little known. And then we women go to the doctor and there's only 10 minutes to talk and women are embarrassed talking about vaginal health or sexual health. And the doctors are embarrassed to ask about sexual health and vaginal health. And they might think, oh, if she didn't complain, it's because everything is fine. And nobody brings up the subject. And then women come in and they leave with the exact same problem they had before and no courage to talk about it and improve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so key. There needs to be more of an awareness and more of a, a dialogue around it. And for people to realize there are ways to prevent it from getting worse as time goes on. It's not, you know, oh, my my sex life is over. I, you know, can't do the things that I used to do. There are some tools and supports for navigating vaginal and urinary health um, through menopause. And does, do you, like, I commonly see some of these symptoms start in perimenopause, um, um, what what's happening there? Is that you know the estrogens kind of fluctuating and starting to decline? Like, what age can we start to see some of these symptoms? Uh, let me just back up a little bit because you brought up a very good uh, topic, a very, a very good point. Dr- vaginal dryness does not does not only affect women who are sexually active; it also affects women women who are not sexually active. Mm-hmm. Because if you have vaginal dryness, if you have a vulva, a dry vulva, wearing tight jeans, sitting all day at a desk, riding a bike, running, exercising can be really uncomfortable or painful. And many women, I know many women who stopped riding a bicycle after trying two or three pairs of shorts that didn't help anything. Because that wasn't the issue. It wasn't the shorts that were going to make it. It's lubrication and moisturizing that's going to help. So uh, it it affects the quality of life of both sexual and non-sexually active women. Mm -hmm, Um, The question you just had was about, remind me again. Oh, yes. So when in perimenopause and like what age do you commonly see it start? Yeah. So perimenopause can happen at a much younger age than we think. So if, for example, um, perimenopause lasts six to eight years, let's say six, and the average age of menopause is 51, minus six is 45. But there's also women who go through through menopause at a younger age than 51. So some women go through menopause at 45. So 45 minus six is 39. Nobody nobody is thinking about perimenopause at 39 years old. It's it's usually not in the radar of most women. Many women who who believe that it could be a cause for their discomfort go to the doctor and they say, oh no, you're too young to be in perimenopause. It's not that yet. So there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of uh, ignorance surrounding this. So it can start in perimenopause because, as you said, estrogen levels fluctuate. So some months we don't ovulate. If we don't ovulate, we're not producing as much estrogen. If we don't produce as much estrogen, the tissues are going to dry, uh, to dry up. So it could happen in perimenopause. But as I said, it tends to get worse with time since menopause. The longer you are without estrogen, the longer, the worse this, this syndrome uh, seems to become. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I, I think some people get confused about, we'll get into some supports, but people get confused about moisturizers versus vaginal lubricants. Can you explain the differences of those? Yes, very good point. So um, what moisturizers and lubricants are first line therapy for vaginal dryness and painful sex. And then we have, um, after that, the second, the second, the uh, second, line of therapy would be low-dose vaginal estrogen. There's also a new uh, ovule that is DHEA, which is not to be confused with the DHEA you get over the counter. And there's a a brand new oral prescription in the Canadian market that is called Ospamathene. But lubricants and moisturizers are first-line therapy. And then if it doesn't work, we go after the lather and and change therapy as needed. Lubricants are are short um, short lasting. So they don't last long. Usually they're applied only before intercourse or sexual play by one or more partners. Um, and as I said, they don't last long. So they just provide lubrication to make, um, sex more pleasurable, to help with orgasm, um, to add the lubrication that the layers of cells are not providing anymore because those layers are gone due to lack of estrogen. Then the moisturizers can be used on a daily basis, on a continuous basis. They are longer lasting. So if you buy a moisturizer, it may say on the box that you only apply it three times a week, for example, because the, the ingredients in the moisturizer adhere to the walls of the vagina and they bring on moisture to the cells and then they don't need to be used every day. But read the labels because some products have to be used every day, some are not. Um, and that is moisturizers are used whether you, uh, it, regardless of uh, sexual uh, interaction. So you can use a moisturizer all the time. You can use a moisturizer if you're having a dryness and it's bugging you, sitting down, riding a bicycle, whatever. You can do that. It's even possible to use a moisturizer if you're breastfeeding, for example, because during breastfeeding, estrogen um, production is also decreased. So breastfeeding mothers can have vaginal dryness. It's temporary. Once they stop breastfeeding, estrogen levels resume, go back to normal. So the moisturizers can be used regularly and the lubricants are to be used with sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important clarification. People get confused. Yeah, just as a side note, I remember when I was breastfeeding Stuart and after giving uh, birth, I think I went through a mini menopause. I was hot all the time. I was getting hot flashes in the day and sweating and I didn't get too much vaginal dryness. But yeah, it's interesting. Just those sudden abrupt changes in hormones. A lot of times we're not educated in what to expect even after giving birth or when we're breastfeeding and then going through perimenopause too. Um, and in terms 
terms of the lubricants, uh, what would be the benefits of, you know, silicone based versus water based? And what do we need to look out for when it comes to lubricants and moisturizers? That is a very good point. But unfortunately, the products do not offer women or pharmacists because women can go to the pharmacy and ask for for help because there's so many things on the shelf. It could be so confusing. It could be so overwhelming, not knowing what to get. So there are water, oil, and silicon-based lubricants. Everything with water uh, needs to have be isosmolar, meaning that usually the more ingredients these water-based lubricants have, the harsher they are on the tissues and the more um, irritation they can cause. So Water would be the ideal thing to, to apply, but water itself would be very hard to apply. So they have to add an ingredient to, uh, to the water in order for, um, for the water to become viscous so we can apply it. But th- these products, these water-based products can be irritating because they have a pH that is not similar to the vaginal pH, which is around five. It's a little more acidic than water. And they can have so many ingredients that they actually cause more dryness, if it makes sense what I'm saying. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, most products in the market do not have written down on the box for customers to understand what the pH is and what the osmolality is. So I always say, Try it on the inside of your elbow first, a couple of times before you use it. Try a very little bit before you need it for for um, sexual activity. If it burns, wash it off and don't use it ever again and try another product. Mm-hmm. So that applies to water-based lubricants. Then there are the oil-based lubricants, uh, which are, do not have this pH and osmolality issue because they don't have water in them and they can be good as well. And then my favorite of all are the silicone lubricants because they offer the best glide, the most comfort, the longer lasting duration than the water or oil lubricants. And some women say, oh, I just use oil from my kitchen. I use olive oil. I use coconut oil and it's fine. That's okay. But the problem with those oils, if, it, if you're using it and it works for you and you haven't had any trouble, you can continue using. But if you're picking something for the first time, I wouldn't pick kitchen oil just because there are studies that show that with the use of olive oil and all those kitchen oils, there's a higher rate, a higher um, incidence of uh, yeast infections. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't recommend that as your first option. I would always recommend a silicone as a first option. And the silicone is just silicone. It's not absorbed. Uh, It's very safe because it just goes on top of the skin. Nothing is absorbed. And it has long-lasting glide. It's easy to apply. It's easy to wash off. So that would be my option. But whatever feels good, whatever works. Mm-hmm. I like that test of doing it on the inside of your elbow a few times and just seeing how that feels. And, you know, you may mm-hmm. need to experiment with some different ones. And then with respect to the moisturizers, what do women need to look out for? So moisturizers also are available in water base. 
and some of them there's a there's one in a pharmacy that you have to it's not a it's not on prescription but you need to ask the pharmacist for it it's an ovule that contains this this is um i'm talking to canadian <laughs> canadian uh, uh canadian audience so in canada or at least in ontario you need to ask the pharmacist for the hyaluronic acid ovules Hyaluronic acid is an ingredient that is in our body naturally, and it helps to heal wounds. And it draws, when you apply it on vaginally, it helps these cells to draw water from inside. And it, it helps the, the cells to stay moisturized longer than just a water-based moisturizer. So it's, it's not as efficient and as... Um, effective as the low-dose vaginal estrogen, for example, but it's a very good product. And it's a very good option, for example, for breastfeeding mothers who are not going to use a estrogen product. It's a very good option for postpartum, for breastfeeding, and also for uh, breast cancer survivors, because that's another thing that there's such little awareness about. Many breast cancer survivors are put into menopause, what we call induced menopause at a younger age than menopause um, because of treatments uh, like chemotherapy, radiation. It may destroy the um, ovarian function and ov ovaries stop working and women are put into menopause. Also, uh, radiation may um, harm the cells of the vagina, the walls and the tissues. And women also... Um, those that, who are uh, breast cancer survivors are told by the doctors that they should be on prophylactic medication, on medications to prevent breast cancer from coming back. And these medications used to be um, recommended for five years. Now they are recommended for 10 years and they inhibit estrogen production. So it's a double whammy for these women. They may have had some, still some estrogen in their bodies if they are in perimenopause age or premenopause age, but then they have to take these aromatase inhibitors and other medications who are going to prevent breast cancer from coming back, but at the same time, they decrease estrogen levels even further, and that is going to increase vaginal dryness and the GSM. So for these women, many doctors do not like to prescribe uh, um, estrogen, vaginal estrogen, although some women could use it safely, but most doctors are going to say, no, 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 no. So the hyaluronic acid is a very option as a moisturizer. And having said that, if you are, if someone listening to this is a breast cancer survivor and is suffering from vaginal dryness or avoiding sex, like I know many women, because they are so scared of using estrogen that may cause breast cancer recurrence, that they prefer not to have sex at 35 than ever risk having breast cancer again, which is understandable. If you are really, really suffering from GSM and your quality of life and relationships are being negatively impacted, it's a good idea to ask for your gynecologist and your oncologist to talk together with you to ensure that estrogen, vaginal, low-dose vaginal estrogen is definitely not an option for you. So, so if you are a breast cancer survivor, before you say no to 
low vaginal estrogen for the treatment of um, GSM, consult with your gynecologist and your oncologist, your gynecologist and your oncologist. And between the three of you, figure out if indeed you should not be using low-dose vaginal estrogen or if you could use it because it is the best treatment for GSM. It is the best treatment for vaginal dryness. But as I said, some breast cancer survivors do not want to go that route and then they can use a hyaluronic acid moisturizer, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to know there's options out there. And I commonly prescribe the vaginal estrogen too. Can you explain, mm-hmm. not to people with can- breast cancer or history of breast cancer, but can you explain to listeners, how does that work? Like, what does it look like in terms of application, um, frequency, any potential side effects of using vaginal estrogen? Yes. So if you buy a product, a commercially available product, and you go home and you read the pamphlet that comes with it, you're not going to use it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scary, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty scary because we haven't had, NAMS is actually fighting for this along with a few manufacturers of low-dose vaginal estrogen to change the warnings and precautions and the, the black box warnings on the pamphlets that come with these products because low-dose vaginal estrogen is applied only in the vagina uh, daily for two weeks and then twice a week or so. And it helps to grow those layers of the vagina. It helps to grow the uh, the vulva and it helps the tissues to stay supple and moist uh, for a long time. As soon as you stop using it, it, the benefits will go away. But these products, because they are low-dose vaginal estrogen and they applied only there, there's only a base small amount of estrogen absorbed into the rest of the body. But in the pamphlets, they are giving you the same adverse effects and contraindications and warnings as for the estrogen products that you take by mouth, for example, the estrogen pills that are going to be absorbed and taken all over your body. So risks like increased breast cancer, increased uh, heart attacks, uh, increased strokes are not seen with the use of low-dose vaginal estrogen. And that's also a reason why when women take systemic estrogen, which is that estrogen that goes all over the body, it's usually for hot flashes and other menopause symptoms. They also, if they have a uterus, they have to take a progestin along with it progestogen to protect the endometrium, to protect the uterus. But you don't have to take that protection when you're using low-dose vaginal estrogen because there's so little absorption. So rule number one, if you buy a commercially available product on prescription, ask your pharmacist which one of those contraindications and warnings are really going to be important to you because most of them are not. So that first off, It acts just on that area and you should not worry about the other side effects. So there's options, there's creams, there's ovules, uh, and there's several uh, brand names and generics. Personally, I don't like, um, I don't like the cream that is, that is available in Canada. There's another cream, estradiol cream available in the States, but it's not commercially available in Canada. We only have, conjugated estrogen available in Canada. 
as a cream to use vaginally. And it is a mixture of 11 different types of estrogen, and none of them is produced by the human body. So many times women do not have such bad dryness inside as they have tightness. And tightness can be uh, treated many different ways. You should go to a a physiotherapist with a pelvic floor specialty because you can use dilators to help the opening of the vagina, get more elastic and make penetration um, easier. But you can also apply, if you have lots of external vulvar dryness, irritation, and itching, you can apply the cream that you would apply vaginally outside. And you can't do that with an ovule. So there's ovules of estradiol available on prescription to use vaginally in Canada, but there's no estradiol cream available in Canada by prescription. An estradiol can be considered a bioidentical hormone if we believe bioidentical to mean that is a very similar chemical structure to the estrogen we produce in premenopause. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does. Yeah. So hopefully so we'll get I some prefer, more options here in Canada. <laughs> yes. I prefer, I prefer to have my clients going to a pharmacy that is a compounding pharmacy that is a membership with a compounding in, uh, North American uh, membership because there are pharmacies who compound things, but they are not compounding pharmacies. So if you go to have something mixed to apply vaginally, make sure that your pharmacy has a membership with uh, with a compounding an entity because they get the uh, best, uh, let's call it recipes. They get the, the best uh, uh, way of making it, cleanliness and reproducibility, all that. So you can use estradiol vaginal cream compounded in a pharmacy and as a bioidentical um, estradiol to use vaginally. Or you can use a cream that is not bioidentical or that you can apply inside and outside. Or you can use estradiol bioidentical ovules if the problem is only inside. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, and if you also yes, and if you also have hot flashes and other menopause symptoms, you can just use systemic estrogen, as I said, in the form of a tablet or in the form of a patch, and that may as well help GSM. But if you are on a very low dose of estrogen systemically, sometimes it's not enough to treat GSM. So you may need an added vaginal therapy. So the rule is, if your only concern is vaginal symptoms, only use vaginal estrogen, not systemic. If you have other menopause challenges that you need to de- uh, decrease with the systemic estrogen, try that first. And if it helps with GSM, great. If it doesn't, you can add a vaginal treatment. Mm-hmm. And when you're saying systemic, so you mean either oral estrogen or you can use a, like a topical estrogen yes, that gets into either the cream bloodstream. on the arm yeah. or a patch or those, the type of estrogen that gets metabolized by the liver and distributed all over the body by the uh, blood circulation. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's good to know that we can get back to that pleated skirt. We don't have to walk around with yes, that pencil exactly. skirt. Although, you know, like... as a younger 20 year old, I wanted the pencil skirt and not the pleated skirt, but the pleated skirt. <laughs> exactly. The GSM is not a life sentence. 
it affects 80% of women. It affects many couples. There are studies that prove this. It's not, it's not anecdotal evidence. There are studies that show that uh, husbands, 53% of uh, partners of women with, uh, with vaginal dryness avoid sex because they know it hurts. So they don't, they don't want to hurt their partner. And, and the, same goes, the same percentage goes for women. They avoid having sex. And then we all know that if we start avoiding sex, we end up avoiding intimacy. And if we avoid intimacy, our relationships um, pay for it. Mm-hmm. It's harmful to relationships when we start avoiding intimacy. So one of my slogans is, do not let your vagina ruin your marriage. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and you have ways to stop that from happening. So that's exactly. awesome. It's I so easy. It. It's not a complicated thing. So it's just mainly lack of awareness, lack of education. And this taboo that we have that we shouldn't be talking about our vaginas and our sexual life to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, stigma and just like people keeping quiet. So then in relation to, you know, prevention and vaginal health, is there anything else we can be doing to, you know, support vaginal tissue? You know, different people use different cleaners or soaps or products. Like what's one other thing we can do to be proactive about our vaginal health? Do not douche. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Do not douche. Do not douche. Don't. Because you're washing away all the beautiful things that live inside. The the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. It's not sterile. It has tons of bacteria that needs to live there for optimal uh, health and to keep that pH lower. As we age and as we go through menopause, that pH increases. And then we have more propensity to have um, uh, yeast infections, to have odor and all that. So it's an evolution of the bacteria that live live there. But if you douche, then you're going to wash all the good stuff out. And you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So do that. Do your, do your Kegels. If you had children, you're probably more likely to have um, prolapse or uh, a lax a pelvic floor. <clears throat> Pardon me. So uh, as I said, if you're over 40 or if you had kids, I suggest, I recommend every woman to see a good pelvic floor therapist because they can tell you the, about the health of your pelvic floor. They can tell you what exercises to do to keep the muscles around your vagina and, and your pelvic floor strong so you don't dribble as much, which is another problem with menopause. And you have um, healthy muscles around your, your vagina. And also, if you if it starts hurting, don't put up with it. Start with the first line therapy. Start with moisture lubricants during sex. Okay, that stopped working. Okay, now I'm going to use moisturizers, moisturizers and lubricants during sex. Maybe that helps for another year or two. For now, none of it helps. Then come see me or go see your gynecologist. Go see someone who can tell you. Okay. We have all the options. Which one is going to be the best for you? Let's talk because estrogen is not ideal for every woman. Not every woman wants to apply tablets and so on. So we, it's very individualized treatment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important to note. And it might change as you transition through the different exactly. phases. So I think you shared some really valuable information. Thank you, Teresa. I think a lot of women are going to learn so much and be more proactive about their vaginal health to make that experience of perimenopause and menopause just more favorable. Um, and then Teresa, how can people get in touch with you? And what what do you have for our listeners? How can people learn more from you? So you can find me on my website, which is menopause.org. So it's menopause with a D at the end.org. Um, I offer, uh, 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 I, I write a newsletter every week. I've been able to do that, even though I've been in Portugal with all this uh, change for the last five months, but I've been sending my newsletter out weekly on Friday mornings and you can sign up for that on my website. And you can also download my Please Yourself Tips for Anesia Menopause and Beyond. It's things like um, less stress, positivity with a P-A-U-S-E, be positive, less stress, um, awareness of your body and what's going through, the S is for sleep, And there's also tips about nutrition and exercise. Sounds very valuable. So we'll link to all of those in our show notes. Everybody can connect with you and sign up for your newsletter and that um, good resource there. Thanks for sharing. Um, So now we'll move to the next part of our podcast. So we're going to talk about our super mom moment, our mess ups and our mama must have. So I can go first if you want. Um, But by super mom moment, I'm going to toot my horn because I've been dabbling in some cold water therapy. I've been having three to four minute cold shower hours every day for over a year. And I was building up to doing actual like cold plunges in the lake during, you know, wintertime or March. And I finally did that on a retreat I went to last weekend. We did a five minute plunge into a cutout um, in the lake, like through the ice. So that was, that was actually easier than the one I did on Friday, which was in Lake Ontario, where you had to walk out into the sand and stone and the wind was blowing. The waves were really high. So that was more challenging. I did two minutes of that, Um, but I'll just toot my own horn. You know, we, our bodies can do amazing things and we can become more resilient as we challenge our bodies. So that's my super mom moment, something for myself. Um, Teresa, what's your super mom moment? Uh, I've been trying to uh, keep up my muscles because um, at the uh, tender age of 50, I learned to do rapids and canoeing. So Ooh, in order nice. to do that, I need a lot of upper body strength. So I'm I'm trying to keep up my weights and my um, weight-bearing exercises, which for every woman in menopause is a must because we want to keep our muscles and our bones to prevent osteoporosis. So I'm doing weights every morning to keep my upper body strength so I can go canoeing again when I, uh, when summer arrives. Amazing. I love that. I'm sure you're, you've got some, uh, good pipes as they say for the arms. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. And then you get to use that with your um, kayaking and on going on the rapids. That's adventurous, Teresa. Uh, it is. It's a lot of adrenaline. I think I'm going to graduate to uh, flat water soon because it's getting a little <laughs> too scary for me. And I bought, a, I bought a new canoe and it's too sensitive to take it on a rapid. So last year I did a one week uh, 
on the map and compass uh, in a few weeks. And I'm going to go and try and do that this summer again. It's I challenging. That. That's I challenging. That. Yeah, sounds amazing. So that's definitely a super mom moment, something for yourself. And then now we'll go to our mama mess up. So I'll go first. So it just goes back to that going away on a one night retreat without Stuart or my husband. Having a kid, we pack so much stuff, right? We anticipate what could go wrong, what we need. And I was in that mindset for myself. So I actually brought way too many things. Like it was embarrassing how many bags I had had. I used about, you know, a quarter or a fifth of the stuff that I brought. So I'm like, okay, I can tone it back a little bit. I'm not a kid. I don't have to plan for my trips like I am once. That was my mess up. (laughs) Um, And Teresa, what's your mama mess up? I know you're doing a great job, but can you think of anything that Uh, the exact same thing you just said? I (laughs) I hiked the Inca Trail um, in 2010. And again, I had a backpack and Crazy me, I took my binocs and a huge bird guide because I was I am a bird watcher. So I figured that in four days of walking 45 kilometers through the Andes, I would have a chance to look at new birds. <laughs> Those things weigh so much. I was so sorry I ever took it, but of course I couldn't get rid of it. It was too expensive to replace and I had no place to put them. So I had to hike the whole Inca Trail with binocs and a bird guide that was as big as a brick. That was a a big mess up. (laughs) Well, you got extra weight bearing exercise, but I'm sure, yeah, that added to the 45 kilometers a day for four days. That's amazing. You're quite the, you are quite the adventurer. So I love that. It was easier than now. It was a lot of lack of oxygen and I didn't practice much for it, but I recommend anyone to do that. It's an amazing adventure. And we ate and slept very well. It was not cold. The major, the major, uh, challenge was a lack of estrogen, not estrogen, not that time, was a lack (laughs) of oxygen because we're going uh, above 3,000 meters most of the time. And sometimes we get very close to 4,000 and then down again, but it's so worth it. It's a beautiful trip. Yeah, you did it. So congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) So it it ended up being a super mom moment in the end. It was a mess up and a super mom moment. Yes. All wrapped in one. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then we'll go to our mama must have. So for me, um, I really like that I got red light bulbs. So for the nightstand in our room, when I'm reading a book, I'll put that on. In Stuart's room, he has um, a nightlight that has red light bulbs in it, as well as kind of like a dinosaur light too. So that just really supports um, our melatonin production. So it doesn't shut it down from, you know, blue light and the typical broad spectrum light bulbs can do that. So that's definitely my mama must have. I do, I do think it really helps with um, my sleep and Stuart's sleep too, and my husband's as well. Um, and Teresa, what's your mama must have? Does it have to be a thing? No, it can be a like a tech tool, a mindset, anything. Okay, yeah. so my must-have is a minimum five minutes of stretching before bedtime in order to sleep well, to fall asleep in the first five minutes. I must get on my yoga mat and do a few stretches and just get my mind off my day and just relax and start getting tired and sleepy and uh, having a droopy eyelids, a nice stretch. And when I go to bed, I fall asleep within five minutes. Oh, that sounds like a good routine to incorporate. A lot of women just expect to go from like a hundred to zero and fall asleep. Right. But I love that it takes five minutes and you use that time to just like get into your body and relax. 
at least five minutes. If you have longer, when I have longer, I do it longer. The longer, the better, because it's it's good for your body and it's good for your mind. And then it's going to be good for your sleep too. So it's, it's all wins. Definitely. That's a really good mama must have. So thank you for sharing. Um, and for our listeners, uh, Dr. Tony has a next hypnobirthing class series starting in April. You can get more information and sign up for a free online masterclass to reduce fear and anxiety around birth. So you can go to her website at www.hypnobirthingcalgary.com. And I am launching my spring wild collective, which is going to have some in-person and virtual sessions. So it's for those in the GTA area. Um, so you can get on, um, get signed up for the free sneak peek sessions I'm offering the week of April the 4th. I may be offering some a little bit after that, if this is coming out a little bit later. So you can go to www.wildcollectivetoronto.com. And also thank you for joining us today. You can email us or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to subscribe, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you enjoyed this episode. And you can also support us by visiting our Patreon page. So you can tell your perimenopausal mama friends about us too. And thank you so much, Teresa, for sharing um, your insight and all of these valuable tips that are really going to enhance the quality of life for our listeners. So everybody be sure to check out Menopause Ed um, and Teresa, just reach out to her for support. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. And stay safe and healthy, everyone. Until next time. Bye.